what, what was your your earliest memory of this system? When I was arrested, I was arrested out of the state. They actually sent me to the adult county jail. And um, I stayed on intake for a few days. And then they came to my cell and like told me, uh, you have to go upstairs because like the intake is full. Before getting a degree and co-founding a not-for-profit, Denzel Burke was a kid. At least, he was when he was arrested. But because of the circumstances, the where and when of his arrest, he was taken to a facility for adults. The first few days in intake meant Denzel was in a kind of limbo. Processing was out in the open. But as he waited, more people needed to be processed. Eventually, the facility didn't have space for him to wait anymore. I'm like, you know, should I be sent to Chicago and like sent to a juvenile? And they were like, you know, they're still waiting to come get you. So they sent me upstairs to like a tier. And then I was like, at this point, I'm telling them like the guard, I'm like, I'm 15 years old. I'm like, am I supposed to be housed in an adult facility? And I'm like, well, I have my own room. And they're like, no, you got to sell me and everything. So I'm like, okay, because I didn't know, like, can I refuse or anything? So it was a, a weird experience because it wasn't any windows. It was like a real, like, county-level, like, jail. And I was there for about um, close to a month before getting transferred to Chicago. Chicago meant juvenile detention, with people his age. But beyond that, it wasn't clear what was in store at the Illinois Youth Center. It was, it was huge. It could house like more than a thousand probably young people. It was like, I didn't know a, a one building could house so many young people who all wore the same color clothes, which was like dark blue. And I seen a kid that had to be about like 10 years old on the elevator. I thought I was probably gonna be the youngest person. I seen, you know, much younger kids there as well. But beyond the shock of its size, there was something else. A new thought came to Denzel. Um. It feels like, in some ways, like you, you're you meant to be there. Um, it looks like a lot of money is poured into it, a lot of staff. And I see that um, America thrives and it makes a lot of money off prisons in different sectors because they capitalize off one another. It is, a, um, I feel like, kind of like a, a diabolical kind of plan to um, create the, the shaping of America this way. And it benefits a lot of people and it hurts a lot of people. This is Without. I'm Omar Alakad. What Denzel observed was a sliver of an entire economy structured around the carceral system. Companies that make everything from toothbrushes to uniforms all thrive off the prison industrial complex. But let's think bigger. How about whole prisons? With guards, programs, food. Not run by the state, but large enough to be traded on the stock market. For nearly 40 years, The Bureau of Prisons, casually known as the BOP, has been outsourcing a section of its federal inmates to privatized companies. The reason that happens is fairly straightforward. We've locked up more people than we have prisons for, so we began outsourcing. But those prisons may be disappearing. On today's episode, America Without Privatized Prisons, we take a trip inside with a guard, and we see how a single presidential order sends the entire prison industry's share price tumbling. That's ahead. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. 
Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. It was like a McDonald's interview. It's like, how do you work with others? What do you do if your boss tells you to do something you don't want to do? Just boilerplate questions. They didn't ask me why I wanted to work in a prison. They didn't ask me anything about my job history. Um, So it was extremely easy. This is Shane. In 2014, Shane applied and was accepted for his first job as a prison guard. His employer was Wynn Correctional Center, or actually its owner, a private prison company, the Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA. Wynn was a medium security prison with around 1,500 inmates. Before starting, all guards would need to go through training. The day started early. I wake up at about six in the morning, um, you know, take a shower, put on this kind of oversized prison uniform. And then I drive about 45 minutes away, mostly through a state forest um, and, you know, pull in, um, get to the kiosk, tell them I'm there for training. They just wave me through, sit down in the classroom. And I just, you know, put my coffee mug down on the table, hit record, and hope that nobody notices the little dot, you know, in the middle of the, um, the lid. And uh, I don't know how this is going to go, you know. I'm just imagining what, what could possibly happen. If his interviewer had looked at Shane's resume, they'd have seen he wasn't exactly your typical candidate for the job. Shane Bauer was a journalist working with Mother Jones magazine, and Wynn was his next story. Private prisons were hard to access from the outside, interview requests denied. But as a guard, he'd have full access. First thing, company training. I start to get to know the other cadets, and, um, you know, I become more comfortable with them. And at one point, I think one of them was talking about camping or something like that. And I, I talked about backpacking in the Sierras. And, you know, one cadet is like, why are you here? Why did you come from California? you know, to this place for this shitty job. I think I just said, like, you never know where life's going to take you. What's the first thing that that surprises you once you're in the system? One thing that I remember is one instructor asked, what would you do if we saw two inmates fighting? What do you do, you know? And, you know, the obvious response is you break them up. You get in there and you break them up. And, um... But that was the wrong answer. What you're supposed to do is yell at, just yell at them, stop fighting. It's a liability for us to get involved. Because to get involved would put the guards at risk. And if they get hurt, CCA is stuck with part of the bill. So it's kind of all about like covering liability, doing the, the thing that's going to cost the company the least amount of money. After the break, Quakers, private prisons, and the lengths you go to hide your identity... Welcome back. Private prisons exist to save the government money, but this need to save money is relatively new. For more than 100 years, prisons actually made money through what's called contracted labor. Incarcerated men and women put to work, everywhere from factories to mines 
railroads to farms. The concept of forcing prisoners to work was first proposed by the Protestants and Quakers, of all people. The idea being, if you lock people up, they'll have time to think, and the hard work will reform them. That initial idea opened up room for what essentially became an unchallenged economic engine for the prison system. From the very beginning, there were people sounding the alarm about where a policy like this would inevitably lead. America's prisons are actually the reason political philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville first came to America. He wanted to study them, and immediately, he warned that turning a profit on the work of the imprisoned would render prisoners' lives meaningless. As the importance shifted to the profit gleaned, rather than the rehabilitation of the person laboring. In the 1980s, during Ronald Reagan's presidency, the rate of incarceration was on the rise. It was around then that Terrell Don Hutto, a prison warden, formed CCA with a couple of his friends. Their idea? Offer the Bureau of Prisons a cheaper alternative to their existing system. If it cost the government $127 a night to house someone, maybe they'd be interested in CCA, who could offer beds for just $37 a night. They actually got a hotel and converted it into a prison very quickly. Um, So the model was you know, based on the hotel system um, where the state would pay, you know, the rate, essentially, for someone to sleep in the room, which is now a cell. Um, and that model continued. You know, that was just stayed the model. is currently the model of private prisons. The model was successful enough that CCA was able to go public. Today, CCA is one of three publicly traded private prison companies. So the basic way that uh, the economics of private prison companies work is that there are two things. One is that their public companies are traded on the stock market, so people can invest in them. And a lot of uh, pensions, you know, might be investing without knowing it. But let's get back to Wynn and Shane's undercover work. At what point in this process did it, did the economy of like private prisons start becoming evident to you? I mean, honestly, I think the the economy part was apparent immediately. It was like, okay, I'm in training. There's people right out of high school that are working there. You know, they're taking anybody they can get. And the reason is that nobody wants to work there because they're paying so little. At the time, Wynn's main competitor was Walmart, which paid eight fifty. Wynn paid nine dollars an hour, and offered limited health insurance for the employees. Inmates had a different setup. One of the big expenses in a prison is medical care. One guy was complaining about um, having severe pain in his legs. He wanted, was asking him to go to a doctor outside, and they wouldn't send him. When the inmate would visit the prison doctor, they'd give him a Motrin and send him back to his dorm. It got so bad that the the other prisoners in his dorm thought that he had something contagious and they would force him to, like, be away from everyone else. So the prison sent him out and he had to get his legs amputated because the gangrene was so bad at that point. That's right. Gangrene. But what's behind this is that by the contract of Wynn, he was responsible for paying for outpatient care. Um, The state would not cover that. So there's incentives to not send them. 
you know, just to kind of hang on to them um, as long as they can. And that, that I saw many examples of that. Shane saw all sorts of things, in part because he and his colleagues had to oversee large groups of people and often work 12 to 14 hour shifts. Staffing was really low, extremely low. I mean, there were days that the prison would go on lockdown because there wasn't enough guards working. The uh, mental health staff, there was one person dealing with, I think it was 1,300 inmates, which led to a very um, violent prison. You know, profit is not the only problem here, but this is something that has been strung through the creation of our entire prison system. Unlike his colleagues, Shane was here in two capacities, as a journalist and also masking himself as a guard. And are, are you starting to worry that you're becoming a fundamentally different person? I mean, I did feel that I was changing. When I would go home, I would feel kind of embarrassed about the person that I was in the prison. But then when I would get there, I would just quickly be navigating these, you know, these power dynamics and get caught up in the kind of like thinking that somebody's trying to threaten me and needing to prove that I'm not afraid of them and just all that stuff. And it made me more and more like a typical guard. I became pretty strict. Unlike other kinds of journalism, this was a situation that involved full participation. If he wanted to remain out of suspicion, Shane figured he had to play the dutiful by the book's employee. But being there, with the pressures of remaining anonymous, being insulted, being constantly at risk in one way or another, sometimes it does something to you, something you may not be particularly proud of. It creeps up on you, this change, like once during bartering time, where inmates would exchange items. And so there's one guy who we just let out called Hustle Man, and he had no money, you know, and he would basically, his hustle was like running between these dorms to do these trades for people. And one day he was just really getting on my nerves, and I finally chase him into his dorm, and something falls out of his pant leg, and I pick it up, and it's um, like synthetic marijuana, you know, it's different names, spice, whatever. And I wrote him up, you know, because I was angry with him. And it led to him getting sent to the solitary unit. And so, you know, it's like he was out of my way. I didn't have to deal with him anymore. But when I'm back home, I, I'm just like, okay, this, this is just me being a guard, being vengeful, you know. And, and I'm sending people to solitary confinement, which... I had been in solitary and, you know, it, it, that changed me, you know? I mean, I still deal with that. There's something else you should know about Shane. Years prior, when he was living in the Middle East, he went on a weekend trip to Iraq. We uh, went for a hike. You know, we asked people if there there's a trail nearby. We went up this trail. The trail, you know, kind of started thinning out. We get towards the top of this mountain. We're about to turn around um, and we see a soldier. Assume that he's a Kurdish Iraqi soldier and he, you know, waves us to him. You know, we go to him, of course, and realize that they're Iranian. And, you know, essentially the top of the mountain was the border. So in going to him, we cross the border, take our passports and, you know, um, I was arrested on the border between Iran and Iraq. 
I was imprisoned in Iran for two years. I was pretty disoriented at that time. When Shane sends someone to solitary, when he reacts, it's not without understanding what it's like to be the inmate. You know, it's starting to question, like, what, at what point do I leave? I just told myself I can't do this for much longer. After the break, the getaway, the reformer, and a recycled prison. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back. Four months into his stint as a guard, Shane has started wavering. He's not sure if he can keep doing this. But by this point, he's done such a good job fitting in that his boss has offered him a raise. Of course, his boss only sees half the work he's doing because Shane is coming home each night and unloading recordings, videos, and photos. All of them captured with a trick pen and watch. Around that time, Mother Jones sends down a photojournalist, James West. James is there to take photos of the prison for the article Shane will be writing. But Shane can't take time off, so he continues working, corresponding with James when he gets off work. At least, that was the plan. So I'm at home, like, I'm not hearing from him. I'm kind of like, what's going on? I'm getting nervous. Um, I think I contact my editors, and they eventually tell me that he had been arrested. He went out to get some nighttime shots, and the patrol vehicle or the prison saw a light he was using from his cell phone to walk through the mud and dirt. And they basically called the police. He had bought a drone, hoping to get some aerial footage of the prison, but he had it in the back of his car, and it had he had shipped it to my house, so it had my address and my name on it. So the cops put it together, The whole vibe was like, they are like, we don't care about this prison. We don't care that your friend works there. So he gets the cue that they know. I, uh, yeah, I called in sick that morning and I go pick him up. We're like, all right, we got to get out of here. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. The next day, Shane called in to resign. I guess HR hadn't heard yet. They said they were sorry to see him go. When Mother Jones published Shane's article, it set a fire. Not long after, the Department of Justice contacts him, asking if they could chat about his reporting. When they meet, they tell him that a number of their own studies overlap with his findings. I think it was a week or two later, uh, the Obama administration announced that they were discontinuing the use of private prisons federally. It means the federal system, which is distinct from the state systems, would 
stop using private prisons once the contracts ended. So it would be in a few years, basically. Um, that caused the stock of these companies to completely tank. I mean, I think they were cut in half within a few days. Fast forward a few years to 2016. It's fall and chains in South Africa. At a journalism conference, and I was presenting on this project, and my uh, the last slide, I show the graph of the stock price, the way that it tanked. While I was giving that presentation, the victory of Donald Trump was announced, and I looked up the stock again, it was the exact opposite. It was just going straight up, and it actually it was the stock that rose the highest in the market that day. Trump flipped Obama's order on federal prison contracts, and private prisons were safe again. President Biden is continuing his commitment to embedding equity at the center of his agenda. But four years later, it flipped right back. By signing an additional package of executive actions, he will also sign an executive order directing the Department of Justice not to renew any contracts with private prisons. Private prisons profiteer off of federal prisoners and are proven to be were found to be by the Department of Justice Inspector General to be less safe for correctional officers and for prisoners. Not to mention only marginally less expensive when all said and done. I think the country's ready, and I know this administration's ready. Thank you. Mr. President, what you talking about here from the ballot? You. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Samara, and I will be your conference operator. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to welcome you to Course of Ix Q2 2022 earnings call. In the intervening years, CCA, where Shane worked undercover, has switched its name to Core Civic. One of the larger private prison companies, it holds quarterly earning meetings for its investors. And as we seem to be heading yet again to a country without federal private prisons, Core Civic investors were looking for solutions. Thanks, Samara. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining us. Participating on today's call are Damon Heinegger, President and Chief Executive Officer, and David Garfinkel, Chief Financial Officer. This meeting took place 20 months after President Biden signed the executive order cutting off private prisons. Damon Heinegger, CoreCivic's current CEO, led the call. Ongoing capital structure initiatives. Unlike most shareholder meetings, CoreCivic started with a dedication to an employee. I would like to take a moment to address a tragedy that occurred at our Davis Correctional Facility in Holdenville, Oklahoma. This past weekend, CoreCivic Correctional Officer Alan Hirschberger lost his life in the line of duty, succumbing to an injury from an unprovoked attack by an inmate. Officer Hirschberger joined Corps Civic in October 2021 after a career in the military. We mourn his loss as we also gratefully acknowledge his service and dedication to public safety. Unlike the fluctuations Shane saw after President Obama's order or the rise after the election of Trump, Corps Civic stocks didn't sink that much this time. They were already pretty low. After the commemoration of their employee, CoreCivic CEO launches into their recovery plans. Let me now briefly discuss ongoing developments with our federal partners. Beginning first with our federal customers within the Department of Justice, the BOP, and the United States Marshal Service. The BOP has experienced significant declines in MA populations in the last decade, 
which is a trend that is not expected to reverse. In response to this long-term trend, we significantly diversified our business solutions over the years to meet the needs of other government partners. As mentioned earlier, our last remaining prison contract with the BOP is at our McRae facility in Georgia, again, which expires in November 2022, representing less than 2% of our total revenue. As of this episode, CoreCivic is out of the federal prison game, at least in a way. They're still open to selling properties, and some of their facilities are finding a new use as detention centers for immigrants. Should new needs arise, we believe we are well-positioned to deliver solutions to ICE. While CoreCivic and other private prisons are potentially getting out of the field, they still have a stable of prefab prisons, made at low cost, which are now on the market. It's another way to make money. And of course, investors are always looking for more opportunities to improve CoreCivic's market value, new ways to lower costs. Not long after the corporate eulogy that started the call, one investor asks if there are ways to cut back on staffing. For context, Shane was paid $9 an hour as a guard, sometimes overseeing dozens of people on his own. Thank you. So I'd like to follow up on um, one of the questions you received earlier on staffing. And with wage inflation, you know, impacting you and impacting so many others, you know, across the board in lots of uh, sectors, do you think longer term there might be an opportunity to reduce the ratio of staff to uh, occupancy, either through, I don't know, enhanced training of uh, staff or other measures? Yeah, a good question. Um I guess the way I'd answer it is that, um, you know, there are some things that, you know, over time have improved staffing, but anything that's the day. Yeah, I can think of two facilities that we renovated this year uh, that would redesign the facility to add additional populations without a commensurate increase in, in staffing. But as I think you know, Em, that most of our contracts have required staffing patterns, and so those aren't decisions that we make uh, in a vacuum. Uh, that's always a collaborative discussion we have with our, with our government partners. Government oversight strikes again. It's easy to be outraged about private prisons and kind of see that as completely distinct from the public situation. And the reality is the public situation is not much better. I mean, it's private prisons are especially bad, but, you know, this is a also just a problem of American prison system. You know, the private prisons are a result of the fact that we have way too many people in prison. It's a way to deal with that. In 1997, CoreCivic saw its share price reach an all-time high of $138 and change. Today, as of this recording, the same shares trade for $9.26. So perhaps there is a pathway to the end of private prisons, as coldly pragmatic and profit-focused as the reason they sprung up in the first place. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. Our senior producer is Emil Klein. Our producer is Lashik Lotus-Lee. And our associate producer is Fendel Fulton. With additional reporting from Jordan Allen and production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Katcher of Nice Manners. And our research is by Sarah Mathis and Zoe Kruskin. 
Special thanks to Shane Bauer, whose book, American Prisons, and article, My Four Months as a Prison Guard, are exceptional pieces of journalism. Seriously, go read them. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. This marks the end of our first batch of episodes, and we're going to be on hiatus for a few months while we work on the next set. I'm really excited for some of the stuff we've got coming up for you. We'll see you in October.